Welcome to this University of Michigan Museum of Natural History podcast. On this episode, we're featuring a science cafe from January of 2018 on the archaeology of contemporary migration. To find out about future science cafes, please visit ummnh.org. Hello, everybody. If I can interrupt your conversations, we're going to get started now. Welcome to our January Science Cafe, which is called An Archaeology of Migration. I want to welcome you all here. We haven't had a Science Cafe for a couple of months, and it's great to see everybody again. Happy New Year, even though it's getting late in January. Please join me in thanking Connor O'Neill's pub for making this space available to us. So I'd like to hand the mic over now to Kira Berman, our Assistant Director for Education, and she'll talk with you about how the Science Cafe will proceed. Thank you so much, Amy. Welcome, everybody. Um, if I see a few new faces here, so I'll just uh, go over our format very briefly. Um, we'll, have, we'll start with a presentation from a guest speaker, um, and uh, he is Jason DeLeon. He's standing over there. So you, you can see him, and um, we'll do about uh, 20 minutes to a half an hour presentation. We'll break for discussion uh, at your tables. There are some questions on your tables uh, for, that are discussion questions. We'll have a, a table discussion uh, until about 7 o'clock, and then we'll have a large group discussion after that, which I will moderate. Um, so thank you so much for being here. Tonight's topic, an archaeology of migration, is very timely, and I'm, um, I'm so happy and excited to have Jason here. I'll give him a brief introduction. But before I do, um, I, I want to say that we have many sponsors of Science Cafes, um, and one of, one of our past sponsors of Science Cafes is here this evening, and she's having a birthday. So I want to wish you a happy birthday, Andrea Scott. <laughs> um, did you know that you can sponsor a Science Cafe? If you have questions about that, see Nora over there. Um, uh, and what happens when you do? Well, we take our donation box, which is currently uh, over by the food, we take that away, and we say thank you very much uh, many, many times over. Uh, so with that, oh, I also want to say we have a photographer, reporter from the Michigan Daily, Richita, who is here today. Um, and so if for some reason you don't want your picture taken, uh, see her. <laughs> <laughs> Otherwise, be prepared. Um, okay. With that, um, Jason DeLeon is Associate Professor and Director of Undergraduate Studies at the UM Department of Anthropology, and he's awesome. Um, aside from that. He obtained his PhD in 2008 from Penn State, and in 2013 he was named a National Geographic Emerging Explorer, which is very prestigious. His research interests include theories of violence, materiality, death and mourning, Latin American migration, crime and forensic analysis, and archaeology of the contemporary. He directs the Undocumented Migration Project, a long-term study of clandestine border crossing that uses a combination of ethnographic, archaeological, and forensic approaches to understand the phenomen 
this phenomenon in a variety of geographic contexts, including the Sonoran Desert in southern Arizona, northern Mexican border towns, and the southern Mexico and Guatemala border. So please welcome warmly Jason DeLeon. Thank, thank you so much for, for having me. And I was joking that if you want me to get, get me to do something, you just say, oh, there's going to be beer. So that's, this is a, anyone in the room who's trying to get me to do other, like guest lectures, you just, it's just kind of one, one thing on the, uh, on the request list. Um, we're living in interesting times, and it's kind of ironic that we're having this talk about immigration and um, the demonization of migrants and perhaps a discussion about historical amnesia in an Irish pub. Um, so, I mean, this is a, a pretty apt kind of lo- locale to, to talk about these things. And I think um, we live in a moment now where it becomes important to remind people of history and also to use science to help people to understand how things are currently, how we got to this kind of place, um, and to put out information out into the world that I think is based on um, on rigorous data collection. And I've been starting... Um, this quote that's up here... Um, on the wall, I'll just read it. I will build a great wall, and nobody builds walls better than me. Believe me. And I'll build them very inexpensively. I will build a great, great wall on our southern border, and I will make Mexico pay for that wall. Mark my words. I have been dealing with this quote for a couple of years now, and, and I used to use this as like, ha-ha, and now I'm more using it like, huh, now I have to like actually go back and Talk about this, not in just like a meme kind of way, but to say, look, let's think about walls. Let's think about history. Let's think about what things cost. And then more importantly, let's think about the current kind of border enforcement um, as we know it. And so I like to pair this quote uh, with the next one, which is by Janet Napolitano, who um, is currently the the head of the UC system in, in California, but before that was the head of the Department of Homeland Security. And, and her quote here where she says... Um, you know, she's skeptical about um, border security sorts of things. And this, my favorite quote, where she says, you can show me a 50-foot wall, and I will show you a 51-foot ladder at the border. That's the way the border works. And unfortunately, for 100 years, we have been spending time, energy, and money to fortify this geopolitical boundary, um, despite the fact that everybody knows that the issue is not about the border. It's not about a wall. It's not about border patrol agents. It's about a whole bunch of other things, and the border becomes a metaphor for anxieties, for fear, racism, xenophobia. Um, it's a smokescreen, a deflection. It, it's all these things, but we are once again finding ourselves talking about whether or not we should invest billions of dollars into building a wall. And so I, I wanted to spend today um, just talking a little bit about what border security currently looks like and to give you a sense of why a wall is both impossible and, and, and prohibitively expensive and also completely ineffective. So we can go to the next one. And in order to understand border security and these issues of, of the wall, I have to talk to you about this policy that's called prevention through deterrence. And so prevention through deterrence came about in the early 1990s, and the story of it is really fascinating. Bowie High School, which is located right on the border, in, it's in El Paso, Texas, is literally the, with, with a, a couple of hundred feet from the, from the U.S.-Mexico boundary. 
In the early 1990s, Latino students who were at Bowie High School were getting harassed by Border Patrol agents because migrants were hopping the fence to, to go to work, their day job in El Paso from Juarez, were hopping the fence and running into town. And to get to jobs, they were oftentimes running across campus. And so Border Patrol starts chasing these migrants through this high school campus. And of course, it becomes impossible to identify who is, who is undocumented if everybody looks the same. Right? So, okay, well, if, if, if race and, and the way that someone looks becomes your criteria for illegality, you, I mean, South Texas, Southern California, everybody, you know, there's a lot of brown people, and it's, it, it becomes impossible to distinguish who is legal and who is not. Um, so students at Bowie High School and some of their teachers put together a court case and started to sue the federal government and saying, look, we are tired of you harassing us, students, citizens, people with green cards, people who, who are U.S. citizens who are going to school. We are facing a lot of discrimination on campus on a daily basis. So imagine you're walking to chemistry class and you get detained by Border Patrol because of the way you look. And you have to show your ID. You have to convince them that you're illegal. Um, so this was going on for, for many, many years. And so finally, these students put together th this proposal to say, look, we're going to sue you now for, for these human rights violations. And what ends up happening is the Border Patrol sector agent at the time was a man named Sylvester Reyes. And he kind of recognized that this is a problem. He, this is bad for business if your constituency is 90% Latinos uh, and they're saying, look, you're arresting my kid on the way to chemistry class. You need to fix this sort of thing. So Reyes came up with a plan, um, and it was totally unsupported. Um, he just kind of went rogue in, in a lot of ways and decided that he was going to get a bunch of agents, line them up along um, the, the border, put them in and around Bowie High School. It was going to bring in helicopters, trucks, have people permanently stationed on campus and near and nearby. And so if you were a border crosser headed to work in the morning and you kind of creeped up on the fence and said, well, there's two dozen agents here, I'm, I'm not going to try here. I'm going to walk a mile east or west where there's nobody, hop the fence, and, and then go to, go to my work, go to my job, and then go back to, to Mexico in, in the evening. So this is what happened. And it was totally unsanctioned, um, but what it, uh, what it did do was it made the students feel better because they weren't getting harassed anymore. And, uh, and from Reyes's perspective... Um, and Reyes is a Latino as well. And so something else to talk about is the fact that over 50% of Border Patrol agents are Latino agents. And so you get all these kind of complexities about race um, that, that, that happen with this law enforcement. So it makes these migrants have to walk f out into the woods, the outskirts of El Paso uh, or Juarez, to hop the fence. And so it doesn't actually stop migration by putting all these agents on the border. It just slows them down. And so, um, or redirects them. And so what ends up happening is these folks, they walk five miles east or west, hop the fence, and now they're walking around in the woods. And so they hop the fence, and, and there's nobody around, so i got to walk five miles back. But now a Border Patrol agent sees you in the middle of the woods and goes, well, there's nobody out here. You have no reason to be out here unless you are a border crosser. It's, you're easier to catch. And um, I'll show you some of the language that they use um, in, in terms of how putting people into, des into desolate places can become a, um, a, an, an important enforcement strategy. Uh, but what ends up literally happening is it just makes things less visible. Because it used to be like this. This picture up here is from San Diego from the early 1990s. If you, if you went to San Diego um, in the early 90s at dusk, or San Isidro, um, there's a place called the soccer field where hundreds of migrants would, would um, congregate at, um, at the end of the day, wait for it to get dark, and they'd hop the fence and run into the U.S. And Border Patrol would be stationed there and be looking for these, these folks. But 
um, there weren't enough agents to catch them. And there's a, a kind of old movie from the 90s by, by Cheech Marin called Born in, Born in East L.A. where they kind of parody this, this phenomenon, but it, it was something that was happening on a daily basis. And they would make these videos of folks hopping the fence and running into downtown San Ysidro and to say, look, we are being literally invaded right now. This is what immigration looks like. We need to secure the border. And Pete Wilson, at the time who was the governor of California, was getting a lot of pressure from San Diegans who were saying, look, the border is out of control. We're seeing these videos. We need to fix things. And so he saw what was happening in El Paso. These folks in El Paso were saying, well, we just put a bunch of agents in in downtown El Paso, and our problem was solved. We no longer have to look at border crossers because now they're out in the woods. So Pete Wilson said, well, let's do the same thing here. Um, So he does that. And people realize at the same time as they're pushing migrants away from these these urban centers out into the woods, um, at first Reyes gets he gets a lot of flack from the border patrol. They're saying, "Look, you're going kind of rogue, man, and not, we don't really appreciate you coming up with these these policies without approval." But then Pete Wilson does it, and then someone else, and then people go, "Well, it's working in California. It's making migration less visible." And so they started to come up with a policy to see if they could formalize this use of the environment and and kind of a show of force in urban areas so that migration would become both less visible, which is better for politics. There's less photos to take of people hopping the fence, and you can say, look, I'm being strong on security because you no longer see migrants. But then someone else said, well, we can use the actual border environment as a way to slow people down. And so there's a very important document that comes out in 1994. It's called the Border Strategic Plan, which is this one. And there's two passages that are um, crucial. And you can find this on the Internet, It's um, at least for the time being, before we start deleting these websites. But folks have scanned these PDFs, put them back up. It's a two-page document, but it is, um, is fundamental to our understanding of how border security currently works. And the first part of it is this, is this passage where someone writes, the border environment is diverse, mountains, deserts, lakes, rivers, and valleys – these form natural barriers. So these, can, these things can slow you down. Mountains, rivers, um, extreme temperatures. Um, you can freeze to death um, in southern Arizona in the winter up in the, and, at, at higher altitude. You can die of dehydration in the summer. And, and it, it was recognized at this time that the, the environmental conditions themselves could slow people down. And so that was the first part. And then the second part was this recognition that if people find themselves trying to cross these areas, illegal entrants crossing through remote areas, they may find themselves in, quote, mortal danger. And so someone is writing that, that they predict that if you force people into these areas through this policy that was intended just to make it less visible and maybe better for these high school students, you actually can force them to, to run across the Arizona desert or the, the, the mountains of, of eastern California. And this line here where it says if you... If, if it's disrupted and these folks are forced over more hostile terrain, it's less suited for them to cross, and it's more suited for law enforcement. So you can spot them easier. It's also easier to catch people if they are dead or half-dying because they've walked for five days through the Sonora Desert of Arizona. And this is what we did. We did this in the early 90s in the Clinton administration. This was, this was totally formalized. This is a map of Border Patrol sectors um, that are how they divide those things up. But what they, the, the red lines kind of mark, at least for, uh, for this era, the mid-90s, places where we had a kind of intense show of force. So 
it became virtually impossible to cross in San Diego, impossible to cross near El, near El Paso. Um, it's pretty difficult to cross near the town of Nogales. But they left kind of big parts of the border un, um, unmonitored or, not, or unfortified because it's impossible to fortify. It's just hundreds of miles of, of desolation. And so we left the back door of southern Arizona open, um, especially the region known as the Sonora Desert. And if you think about from 2000 to 2015... Five million people were apprehended crossing through this narrow strip of southern Arizona. Um, it's not a, the, the, we, it, it's a part of Arizona that is impossible to um, to really monitor because it's so remote. And you get out there and getting a vehicle out there, um, having communication. There's there, things are there's there, there's a lot of things that are working against um, kind of in, intense military presence. So they just left this whole thing open. And I kind of joke. I mean, Arizona gets a bad rap. I love Arizona. Um, it's also people consider it to be like a super racist state for all kinds of reasons. But I, I, I think it's a lot more complex than that. Um, obviously, there's, there's xenophobia and racism everywhere. Um, but I think in Arizona, one issue that, that local citizens actually face is the fact that the federal government has used their backyard as this form of deterrence. And so you, between 2000 and 2015, you know, 5 million people, that's, that's like the population of Houston, Texas being funneled through your backyard. And, and the state is, has been charged with, with dealing with the expenses that come with, with, with that many people. And so it's a lot more complicated than just saying people in Arizona hate immigrants. Um, people in Texas hate immigrants. No, people in Arizona and Texas have to deal with, with immigration issues all day long. And it's, it's related to the movement of people, to the presence of law enforcement, to all kinds of things that, that, are, that cannot be, I think, reduced to this kind of black and white. And... The idea, at least for Arizona, has been walk across this for five days as opposed to, you know, you can hop a fence and then you look at this and you say, okay, you've got another six days to go before you can get to a place where you can be picked up. And, and that's how prevention through deterrence works. It's this idea that the natural environment itself will be a deterrent, will slow you down. And this, it used to be in, t- in the early 2000s, you hop the fence and you would walk across a place like the Altar Valley, which is at least flat. You might get bit by a rattlesnake or have some other horrible thing happen to you, but at least you're not having to mountain climb. But increasingly, we're, being, we're pushing people more and more into mountains to make it, to extend the time. So when I started this project in 2009, a border crossing could take three to five days. Border crossings now in Arizona can take upwards of 12 to 15 days. And what I'm talking about today, this, this work, it, it all revolves around this project that I've been directing since 2009, the Undocumented Migration Project. And I'm going to give you a little bit of, um, of ethnography. So I hang out with migrants um, in Mexico. I talk to people who are preparing to undertake a border crossing or they've just been deported. Uh, I spend a lot of time uh, talking to migrants about their experiences. I give them cameras. I have them photograph what has happened to them en route. Uh, We've been using forensic science to understand what happens to the bodies of migrants who die out in this really remote context, and also using archaeology to, to document these traces of, of this experience. And one of the arguments that I want to make in this today is that this experience that people are having and the things that they leave behind are an important part of American immigration history. Whether you agree with it or not, legally legal, however you want to frame it, this is still part of our history. And 100 years ago... So in 2000, I'll give you a little aside here. In 2009, when I started this project and, sa- and I was saying, archaeology can be an important 
thing to help us understand undocumented border crossings and people saying, look, all you're doing is glorifying this, this illegal act. All you're doing is, um, this isn't science. This is your leftist political kind of endeavor. Um, my favorite comment was, this is what happens when you go to college and major in Chicano studies. Um, I didn't even major in Chicano studies. I, 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 I was an anthropologist, and I, but, I was my, but I knew that archaeology could be important to understand this process. And I have friends who study the Irish experience in the early 20th century. They couldn't have done this 100 years ago. If I had been walking around Five Points, New York, 100 years ago saying, hey, these Irish immigrants who people don't like and they don't want to be here, picking up their stuff and saying, this is important historical material, I'd even punch in the face. Um, which is kind of what we've been having to, this, this thing we've been having to do lately is to, to, to argue that, look, it's all the same. It's just right now it's so close to the bone that it becomes difficult to think about this as archaeology without fully engaging in the difficult politics of it. Um, but that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to use science, social science, to understand this process. And I just want to give you a quick little preview of like what border crossing looks like in this in this current era. Um, this is uh, that's Memo on the left and Lucho on the right, or at least those are the pseudonyms that they chose for themselves when I write about them. Um, this is, these are pictures that they have taken uh, in route with disposable film cameras, and these are two men that I got to know quite well um, during the course of field work who have, who have helped me to understand this process. And they would say to you, Memo and Lucho, they say, okay, you want to explain, and they are always co concerned about how I will explain this to people. So when you go to, when you go talk to, to to whoever it is they imagine me talking to students, um, the general public, I think they think I'm just just some weirdo who they, they don't actually understand that people want to hear about what their lives are like. So I'm, it's it's always a funny conversation about yeah you know people want to hear about you and they're like well just give them my phone number because it'll be a better story. You'll, you'll I'll probably tell them the truth more than whatever you're going to make up as you go. So um, but but they uh, they're, they've been really crucial characters for me. But what they would say is they'd say okay look. You want, to, you want to understand border crossings, you're going to go to southern Arizona. This is a map of um, the U.S.-Mexico border where we work. The kind of gray little oval there, that's the, the survey area where we've done a lot of archeolo uh, archaeological work. We'll go to the next one. Um, the town of Altar, they would say, that's an important place to go to first if you're a migrant. You go to Altar to um, hook up with a smuggler, to get prepared to go into the desert. And this town of Altar revolves 90% around human and drug smuggling. And I'm happy to talk about those distinctions um, in, in, um, later on. But this is a town that everybody knows that this is where you go to meet your smuggler to the point where the local baseball team are called the Coyotes of Altar. So Coyote, right, in Spanish is a euphemism for a human smuggler. That's also the, the baseball team. Um, it's actually Wiley Coyote. Um, I, don't have a, I don't have that picture, but... Um, but everybody there knows that that's what you're going to go there to do. You go there to kind of get situated to enter the, enter the desert. And then from there, you'll hop in a van, and you'll be driven up to the U.S.-Mexico border, where then you will walk for five to, to ten days. And if you go to Altar, it is one of the weirdest Mexican markets, outdoor markets in general, that I've ever been to, um, because Altar focuses practically 100% around human smuggling. So you will find a vendor, many vendors, who will sell you camouflage backpacks, dark clothes, hiking boots, first aid equipment, high salt content foods, water bottles, every single thing that you will need as a border crosser you will find in Altar. And it's an incredibly interesting archaeological assemblage because you, you can watch it evolve in real time as people are changing technologies, reacting to border patrol um, 
um, you know, uh, changes in, in, in security measures. I mean, this is where Janet Napolitano would tell you, you want to buy a 51-foot ladder, you go to Altar. And I promise you now that they are they're scheming about how to make money on, on some new adjustment to whatever border security thing we're going to throw at them next. I work a lot with smugglers now. They love Donald Trump. They're like, man, I'm just going to make a lot more money now. There's a, I mean, there's, it, it, these economic things just revolve constantly. And so, but this is a place where you will just see how, how a, a peasant farmer from, from Oaxaca or, or, or Chiapas will spend 100 bucks and be able to, to get across this desert in, in 10 days. Um, they may die during that process, but they're, but they're bound and determined, and there are folks who will sell them the technology that they might need to do this thing. And they will, these folks will tell you, say, look, all right, this is a shot taken by Memo with a, one of these disposable cameras. They'll tell you, like, look, things are bad where I live, and so whatever you're going to throw at me, it's, it's probably not, not as... N- nothing that you can throw at me at the U.S.-Mexico border is going to be as bad as watching my children starve to death or, or, or dying because of, of being killed because of the drug wars or wh- whatever the... the the current kind of things that are happening in Latin America that oftentimes we as the, as, as the U.S. are involved in, these folks will tell you San Pedro Sula is worse than whatever the Arizona desert can throw at me. This is a picture from the Sonora Desert that uh, Memo had taken. This is right at the, the boundary. And he, when I was asking about this photo, I said, what's up with this picture, man? And he says, well, I wanted you to see how beautiful this whole environment was. I'm like, well, beautiful. I'm like, well, what are you going to do in this picture? He's like, well, I got to walk between those two mountains in the, in the distance. That gets me to like Sawarita, which is still about 20, 20 miles from Tucson. So this is probably, you know, that's 45 miles across this landscape through the mountains. Um, they're doing this in the middle of the summer, so temperatures are averaging above 100 degrees. Um, but he's telling me, he's like, man, I wanted you to see how crazy this is, but also like to know that when I look at this environment... I tell myself that that this is my choice. I can look at this as a death sentence or look at this as something that I'm going to overcome. And those are my, my, my kind of two choices. And he's like, and you can't do this. You can't be negative about it because you're already leaving so much negativity. And so this now, you've got to find new ways to engage with. with and, um, but this is our border enforcement. This is what, it, what our security looks like right now. It's this giant area of the desert. And as I was saying... It's not a flat kind of easy, like, you know, you're walking 40 miles, but oftentimes now it's 40 miles that look like this. So you are wearing kind of crappy hiking boots that you bought at a Mexican Walmart for 20 bucks. You're wearing blue jeans. You've got a couple of T-shirts in your backpack, uh, two gallons of water. At the most, you can probably carry four, but that's pretty rare. You have to drink a gallon of water a day in the summer to survive this thing. Um, You have no compass. You have no map. You are just kind of working with your wits and, and whatever knowledge you've been able to accumulate. But increasingly, people are, are coming up through these, these, these mountainous areas. And oftentimes, they're walking in complete darkness. And no flashlights, right? So you're walking on the flashlight in the desert. That's, that's, you know, not, not, we've got drones. We've got all kinds of people. I mean, you'll, you will be spotted immediately. If you're caught with a compass or a map, Border Patrol will say, hey, well, you must be a smuggler because you, you're the one kind of leading the group. And this, my smuggler buddies laugh because they say, well, what, what smuggler worth, worth their salt would be carrying around a map or a compass? You have to know this terrain, and you can't rely on these technologies. And so these folks are just out there, you know, 
using landmarks, navigating by the stars, shared information, but oftentimes in total darkness. And I grew up in L.A. Um, I'm not... Uh, I kind of hate nature, and I hate it the outdoors, I mean, to be <laughs> blunt. Um, I've come to love Arizona. I, it's, I think it's, a, it's this is a beautiful... I'm, I'm describing this landscape in kind of negative terms. It's a beautiful environment, um, especially for the Tohono O'odham, who are the native folks who live in this region. This is a, a, a very special, important place for them. If you're some city slicker from L.A. who, who would prefer to be drinking beer eating candy and watching Law and Order, this is a terrible place. So when I had to kind of go out into the desert and do this stuff in the beginning, I was like, man, this sucks. And I've only been here for like six hours. So, And I've got, you know, $200 hiking boots, a GPS, um, nine, nine liters of water, uh, a, a satellite phone. And I've gotten into a lot of trouble out in the desert with all this equipment. I've, I've almost stepped on rattlesnakes numerous times, scorpions, um, the, the cactuses, whatever, the cacti, all these things out there. This is nature's laboratory for how to mess you up um, because it, it's like everything out there has evolved to bite you, stick you, inject venom into you. It's a really dangerous place if you have no idea what you're doing, which for a lot of migrants, you're coming from uh, the, the mountains of Oaxaca or the Gulf Coast of Veracruz. This is like going to Mars. And so you're going to Mars in sneakers with two gallons of water and and, and very little understanding of what you're about to get into. And this experience will kill you, um, and it will also, for those who are lucky enough to survive it, I, I think a lot of times there's a lot of permanent damage. Physical damage, emotional damage, the PTSD that comes from spending 10 days in this environment, from being attacked by animals, from, from being dehydrated, from suffering from hyperthermia or, or hypothermia. The folks that I work with oftentimes talk about the months and years it takes to recover from one of these, one of these um, events. And these folks will, will do it multiple times. There was a, a survey that came out from San Diego, UC San Diego, in the mid-2000s, and they found that something between 90 and 98% of people actually got across eventually. It might have taken them five times to do it and $15,000 to do it, but they did it. Um, Unfortunately, there's a lot of folks who, who, who aren't able to get across, but I think that there's a, 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 a trauma that happens to people during these, process, these processes. And so Memo, in this picture underneath the tree, they took this picture. When I asked him about it later on, he, I said, what's going on here? And he's saying, you know, on this, we'd walked for four days. Um, we'd walked for 18 straight hours. At this point, he was vomiting blood and foam. Um, his blood pressure had, had, had just plummeted. They were going to leave him behind. And he was thinking, okay, well, maybe now this, this is sort of, this is it for me. And... When, when I saw this picture months later, he was still recuperating from this event, was still struggling um, with the, the physical effects of this thing. Um, but he would also tell you that, look, like, this makes me a better person. Like, I, I'm, I'm a hard worker. I, I, I don't take things for granted anymore because I've gone through this process and, and I really value a lot of things. And, and I want, you know, I think for a lot of these guys, they want people to know that, like, they know that none of this stuff is easy. And, and many folks who have come here are not coming here easily. And they're coming here with a lot of sacrifice um, and for, for reasons that are out of their control. But So it ends up being really complicated because I asked Memo, I said, well, so obviously like this is a horrible kind of experience. And he says, well, you know, part of it is horrible. It almost killed me. But also it, it was kind of a reawakening or a, a, a rebirth. 
I have a new appreciation for, for the value of life because of this kind of horrible thing that I've survived. Um, and, and, and something that, that, that a lot of these migrants carry with them. And I think this is not unique to the Mexican experience. I mean, I think you talk to people from, from Ireland, you talk to people from, from, from Italy, from, from Eastern Europe in the 20th century, early 20th, I mean, they suffer so much to come to this country, and they carry that with them forever. And it's only with, with time, I think, and, and kind of historical distance that those folks are allowed to reflect on on, on the importance of those experiences. Right now, we're in a moment where if you're Latino and you've done this thing, you're definitely not walking around saying, hey, check out what I just did. Let me tell you about my story. I mean, people right now don't have that, that, um, that luxury. They will in 50 years. In 50 years, we will probably whitewash this whole thing and think about this in much more romantic terms, much like we do Ellis Island. Right now, you know, in this current moment, Ellis Island was a wonderful, the beacon of hope in, in America. Ellis Island in the early 20th century was a place where you could pay a, a, a smuggler to help you pass the, um, the physical exam. It was a place where you could bribe an agent so you, can, you could get through. It was a place where, where, where you were treated horribly because of your country of origin and the way that you looked. But we have forgotten about many of those things, and we think about this now. We make this, this historical distinction between these two events, and I think that that's because time has allowed us to do that. The, the archaeological stuff that I won't get into too much today, but I've, I've kind of hinted at it, um, I, I just wanted to co- include a couple of little slides here. So migrants, and my whole, this whole project for me, it started with the idea of, of thinking about what does someone bring with them during one of these crossing events? What would you bring with you to cross the desert? You're leaving home possibly forever, for five days, for, you know, walk for five, ten days. What few things would you put in your backpack that you will be able to think about home, um, to pass on to, 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 to relatives, all, all of those things? I started thinking about that in the context of migration because we knew that migrants leave a lot of stuff behind during this process. Water bottles, backpacks, bloody shoes, um, empty food wrappers, personal possessions that they don't mean to lose. I started kind of looking at that as an archaeological assemblage that was happening in real time. And so this is a picture of, of Lucho here under a tree. He's sort of resting. This is one of the photos these guys have taken. And you can see his backpack. You can see his, um, if you get closer, it's like foot powder. But kind of some personal things that he'll, he'll probably take those all with him. But a lot of folks leave stuff behind. Uh, and what ends up happening is you get kind of, um, the, you get these places where someone has passed through but they have left a physical trace of that of that experience in that moment. And so on the right, this is a uh, an archaeological site. We, we call them migrant stations, for lack of a better word, but they're basically places where people have passed through, maybe they've eaten some food, they've had a little campfire, they've changed their clothes, and often, t- or, and often they've taken a nap, and they've, and they've left stuff behind for different reasons. Maybe they got picked up by their smuggler, and the smuggler says, hey, you're dirty, you're covered in, you're covered in, desert grime, clean up, leave the backpack behind, we've got to put you in the car so you don't look like a border crosser. Or it could be a person was, um, was sleeping, border patrol showed up, and they ran off. Um, people leave stuff behind for all kinds of reasons, but it has a kind of a, te- a temporary or an ephemeral archaeological footprint that we have tried to come through and collect and analyze in different ways. And for me, these materials are really a crucial part of our history because they are going to disappear, and they have been disappearing for many years, and the archaeology in this, in this instance becomes a way to rescue this stuff um, as a part of our, of our shared history. And sometimes, this is a, from the kind of 2000, maybe 11, 12, you would get these sites that were very big. So this is a place where, where migrants had, had walked for five days, and then the smuggler had said, 
okay, it's our pickup spot, change your clothes, leave some stuff behind, get in the truck. And people will leave backpacks behind that are full of love letters, Bibles, photographs, and then also disposable things. And things will kind of build up. This stuff gets cleaned up by, by the Sierra Club and other folks. We've tried to go in and rescue these things as archaeological assemblages, but it's a pretty overwhelming kind of thing. Um, and it's, uh, it gets complicated trying to do archaeological science in this highly politicized context where the people you're interested in documenting and studying were maybe there 15 minutes ago. So it, this it kind of adds a lot of difficult dimensions to this whole, to this whole thing. But over the years, we've been collecting this stuff. And so the University of Michigan, we currently have about 7,000 7, objects in this collection. Um, this ranges from shoes and backpacks and water bottles to, to, personal, to, to more personal items. And over the years, we've tried different ways to, um, to think about archaeology and immigration from these, from these different kind of social science, I think, uh, lenses. We've done exhibitions. We've done some stuff here on campus at Institute for Humanities, an exhibition called State of Exception. It was at MOCAD, and it's been other places. We've taken these artifacts and put them into exhibition contexts to get people to engage with them. So this giant wall of backpacks is something that we did for many years. Um, but at the end of the day, I think one of the things that I do want to argue is that this is history. It's the history of yesterday or this morning, but this is, this is our American and global history. These are artifacts. We should treat this, these things with as much respect as we would the things that we find in Ellis Island, the things that we find in, in, in the Maya area from, the, from, the, from pre-Hispanic periods. But there's no difference between this stuff and that stuff other than the fact that we can ask the people who left the stuff behind right now about these issues. And, and, and we're dealing with these issues on a kind of daily basis. And... For 10 years, I'd been laughed at. People saying, oh, you're the guy that studies migrant trash. You're the, you're the, the, tra- the, the anthropologist of trash. That's kind of, and I've, for, for almost a decade, I've just been saying, look, you can't call it trash. It's not just refuse. To call it trash, to call it garbage, undermines the historical importance of this stuff. And, and I wouldn't call a, a, a lost Bible um, a, a, a family photo album that was lost during this stressful thing. I would not call that. I'd be uncomfortable calling it garbage because it is something else. And oftentimes, there are things that were not meant to be left behind. And probably one of my most proud moments of this whole project, we spent many years negotiating with the Smithsonian about these materials. Are they trash? Are they not trash? Artifacts, not artifacts. History, not history. Um, There's a curator of the Smithsonian, a a guy named Steve Velasquez, who uh, was a really just smart, kind of thoughtful, and forward-thinking individual who um, was able to kind of negotiate the accession of about 120 objects from this collection. So if you go to the Smithsonian today, the American History Museum, they have a new exhibition that's out. It's called one, It's called Many Voices, One Nation. And on permanent display, at least for the next 25 years, are about five to ten objects. It rotates what they show, show from our collection. But we have materials in that collection now that are connecting the immigration experience in the United States with what's happening in the contemporary moment in Arizona and Texas with stuff that's happened in, in previous times. But that was really kind of fighting for archaeology to have um, that voice, this contemporary archaeology in that context. And so the last thing that I want to kind of end on here is so I, I've talked about success. I've talked about people who go through this stuff and they come out and 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 maybe they, they've been fundamentally kind of changed and they can, can sort of speak to the um, to the, the the powerful kind of immigrant experience, but but I would be remiss if I did not talk about those who fail. And so we can just kind of we can, you can just scroll, scroll through all of them if you want. So because I think I forgot this is a bulleted thing. So I talked about prevention through deterrence, 
as this thing that people recognized would, sh- would shift them out into the desert or into the mountains and slow them down. In 1997, this, this thing had been in place, Prevention and Deterrence, for about five years at that point. And a document was produced where they were trying to evaluate the effectiveness of this program. And there will be a Radio Lab episode coming out, I've been told, in two weeks that focuses specifically on prevention through deterrence and this issue of whether or not people have knowingly put migrants in harm's way and have used a death count to evaluate the effectiveness of this policy. And I have argued in many places in my book and other places that, yes, we kill migrants with this policy. We've known that for a long time, and, and nobody seems to, to be blinking an eye about this. In 97, th- there was a couple of things that, that were interesting. A document was produced by the Government Accountability Office, which I think is still online for the moment. Um, you, can find, you can find these things for the, for the time being. But this 97 document tried to evaluate prevention and deterrence. There is a table in that document that says, how do we evaluate it? Well, maybe one way is if, um, if more people die during this process, this is an effective strategy. Because in the, in, the, in the first document, it says if we push them into hostile terrain, they will, be, they will find themselves in mortal danger. So then someone says, well, if mortal danger is a, is a metric, that's the metric then for if this is working or not. There's a table in there that some pencil pusher produced where literally the numbers of people we kill with this policy was, was thought of as a good metric for if we were being successful. And it was noted, and it's been noted many times, that prevention through deterrence will kill a lot of people. Um, and these are not, this is not my liberal bias. This is things that someone else wrote that I had to go and mine the, the archives for. But people saying deaths will, may increase if we force them into the mountains or the desert. And, and I would argue that, that, that this language and these, these Excel charts and all of this stuff, this really speaks to our current understanding of what migrant life is. Do we value it? Is it expendable or is it not? I had been hopeful that we were moving away from this, and it feels like we are now reverting back to this idea that that if you are doing this thing, if you're crossing the desert illegally and you die, tough shit. And, and I think that we have to ask ourselves about the relationship between legality and human life, and we also have to, have to ask ourselves, um, you know, is this, um, is this who we are? Um, as a country, and 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 I'm struggling to have nuanced conversations about legality because because the, I find the laws to be so unjust, and I find just, uh, there's so many other things that are happening right now that it, it's a real it's, a, it's I think it's a, it's a, it's a privilege and it's oftentimes um, it's a position of privilege to be able to reduce things to black and white like this legal versus not legal. I, I, it's just not a world that, that I've really come, come to know. And I wanted to show you this last little chart here about the, the death spike. And there's a, there's a, a fact sheet going around that is, that's produced by the Colibri Center for Human Rights, which is an organization in southern Arizona and Tucson that works with the families of the missing. So many migrants go missing in the desert and are never found. Many people die during this process and are never found. And if you look at the connection, 1993, I'm not a big fan of charts, but I'll I'll just break this down for you quickly. In 1993, prevention through deterrence starts. So the policy starts shifting people into the desert. In 1994, it's probably my phone. That sounds like my phone. Um, Iggy, (laughs) sorry, my son's back there watching 
who knows what on YouTube. Um, and in 1993, this policy starts. In 94, we crash the Mexican economy with NAFTA. And I know that people in the White House are saying that NAFTA was the worst deal the U.S. has ever signed. It's actually the worst deal for Mexicans. Um, U.S. capitalists have profited, at least a certain segment of them, quite a bit from NAFTA. And we as consumers have also profited from NAFTA. But in 94, we crashed their economy and people can't make a living, so now they have to start migrating. If you look at this graph, the, the death spike happens, starts to, starts to rise during that, during that moment. In 93, um, this kind of perfect storm of desert policy and then NAFTA, people have to kind of leave home. And I'd be happy to talk about death, the differences in, in, in how the ACLU counts migrant deaths versus DHS later on. But, but I just want you to know that it used to be that you averaged maybe 10, 12 deaths a year across the entire U.S.-Mexico border. And if you go to the last little thing here, that statistic right there says 2,908 bodies recovered since 2000 in just Arizona. We're, we're pushing 3,000 now of just recovered bodies. 1,200 of those are probably unidentified, and so the Colibri Center, their, um, their fact sheet will give you more, more data on that. But many families destroyed by this, many people who will, who will never be found, and, um, and all of this revolves around this idea of prevention through deterrence. And this is how we still do business today. This wall that we want to build, we don't need a wall. We've got this desert that does this, this stuff to people that um, we've been doing for a long time. And so the, the wall is just a, a waste of money because we already have a thing in place that is slowing people down either through physical kind of assault or, or through actual death. So this is a time uh, where you can discuss at your table. You can get with the wait staff and refill your glasses. Please take care of your wait staff. They're working hard to take care of you. Um, and then um, we'll get back together for a group discussion in a, li in a little bit. Okay. Thank you very much. Thank you. I hear a lot of a lot of different ideas and a lot of good questions out there. But I am going to interrupt you. I'm going to try to interrupt you and bring us back together. Um, so um, this part of our program will be a group discussion, and I have agreed to moderate, um, and I'm going to be holding the microphone too. So I'll let you know if you've got the floor or if you don't. Um, <laughs> so that's the way that's going to work. Um, I'm going to go ahead and pass this cordless mic around. If you can please use it to enable those with hearing impairments to hear and also so that we can record your conversation for podcast. Um, please look at me to be recognized if you would like to speak, even though I am not an expert on this topic. Uh, I, do, I will have the microphone. Um, and a couple of ground rules for those of you who have been here before. This will be familiar, but um, if you're new, I'll, I'll be brief. Please limit your questions or comments to about 30 seconds to a minute just so that we can have lots of people participate. I may interrupt you if you go on forever. Um, likewise, I'll try to give preference to those who haven't spoken yet um, just to diversify the voices that we hear. Um, and there's lots of uh, experience and different kinds of expertise in the room. My hope is always that this part of the program will feel a little bit more like a group discussion rather than just a question and answer session. Um, so with this in mind, please feel free to address comments as well as questions to the group. Um, 
Also, we like to foster open discussion and honest debate, even as we address topics that may be tense or uncomfortable. So it's important to protect our sense uh, of safety, even when we're uncomfortable or we disagree. Um, so please be nice to each other or else. Um, um, and finally, if you forget to turn off your cell phone and it rings during this portion of the program, you will be asked to write the next U.S. immigration reform bill. Um, uh, so please turn off your phone. <laughs> All right. Uh, with that in mind, um, is there a question or comment that we can start off with? Uh, do you have any uh, ideas as far as policy changes that would help some of this. We're having an interesting discussion here with friends from, friends I hope, friends from Chile, and they're having the same discussions in Chile about illegal immigration to their country also. What are some things we could do to help some, I mean, obviously people want to come here and do work, we need people to come here and work. Is there some solution, some middle ground we can reach? I think, okay, thank you. Um, you know, I think that the, the immigration reform stuff is it's so complicated, and, and we're, we're focusing on the U.S.-Mexico border here because I feel like right now the next whatever Thanksgiving conversation that you have about a wall, to people just go and just say, it's not a wall issue, right? It's not about building a wall. We've got – we have a, an incredibly secure border, and, and it, it keeps out um, – and if you ask agents on the ground, they will say, look, I'm here because I'm trying to fight terrorism. And that's how we sell it oftentimes. And it, um, the the idea about immigration reform is happening at the border is not what most people who are on the ground want to have conversations about. And, and part of it is that immigration reform, for me, doesn't happen at the U.S.-Mexico border. It happens in Mexico. It happens um, it happens in Honduras. It happens in, in these other places where a policy I – mean, so – during the Reagan era, we legalized millions of people, and that's, that felt like we were going to just fix the problem, we are going to give everybody amnesty, um, and that helped a lot of people who were here in the U.S., and, but that's like a Band-Aid for this enormous kind of global problem that we have. Um, DACA, Obama puts DACA for, forward. It helps like these incredible young people who have been here for a long time to, to, to not feel so scared for a little bit. Um, and it was an important moment, but that's not comprehensive immigration reform. You'll have a new DACA group in 10 years. And we can't think about we, – we, like, we, we pat ourselves on the back like every time we do one of these kind of stopgap measures. Like, oh, we, 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 we passed – we, we gave people amnesty in 86. We, we, we gave DACA to some folks a couple of years ago. Things are great. That is just these, these other big global – much more bigger global issues having that, that we're, not, we're not dealing with. And I um, – I remember I was having an interview with a with a reporter from the BBC, and she said, "Well, what's your kind of comprehensive immigration reform policy suggestion?" I said, well, "My policy suggestion is to stop screwing with Honduras, to stop messing with Guatemala, and to um, to stop buying cocaine and heroin from Mexico and stop sending them drugs. That's the first step in comprehensive immigration reform: is to acknowledge that the U.S. meddles in all of these different political systems and economic systems, and then those things create these much bigger problems and." Mexicans don't want to be here. It's not like people... I mean, the American dream... I think for a lot of those folks, the American dream is a way to overcome the the American nightmare that we've created in these countries. And so for me, that's... The, it's the, the, the first policy moment is to recognize that 
the things that happen elsewhere that lead to out-migration are, are oftentimes things that we're intimately involved with. And we need to start there and then think about, okay, if we reform that, what, what would this chain reaction then have for our own kind of current immigration policy? But right now, I think when we think about the border, we think about amnesty, those are really kind of temporary right now kinds of things. But we need to play the long game with all of this. What, uh, what fraction of the undocumented immigration is actually from Latin America and not from, you know, Asia, Europe, Africa, China, wherever? NPR just did a piece this week on this, this poor Irishman who had been swept up in these ice raids recently, right? Um, but it made headlines because they were like, oh, wait, Irish people too are undocumented? Um, in the in, in the U.S., we tend if we if we say undocumented, it, the idea is young. It used to be young Mexican and male, and now we know that it's a, it's way more diverse. I think that China, um, Africa, uh, and then various parts of Latin America are representing you know huge portions of populations subpopulations of this group. Mexicans make up people from Latin America make up over fifty percent, but you've got folks coming from other places who, who I mean, so it's not. The wall, right, gets framed as a U.S.-Mexico kind of problem. But even now, I mean, the, the bulk of people coming from Latin America are not Mexican. They're coming from Honduras, El Salvador, and, and Guatemala. Um, so it's, it's way more complex than, than these kind of numbers or the, the, the way it's presented. But Asia coming through other, other various, various ways, I mean, that's a, that's a huge thing. Um, people coming from Africa through different means. Um, so it's, it becomes unfair that I think that we visualize undocumented people as just Mexicans because it's, it's obviously way more complex. One of the things that occurs to me is uh, our economy is driven, dependent on growth. We don't have growth. We don't have the lifestyle we're enjoying. And uh, our economy is very much dependent on immigrants because we're not we're not a growing population and this is and conflate that with you know we're all concerned about global warming but the major reason we have global warming is population growth how are we going to reconcile an economy that grows with the fact that we can have a growing population Mexico City has 25 million people or more. How yeah, this is this 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 is a lot more complicated problem than racism and in in whether we have immigration or not. It comes right down to it. We need immigration to keep our economy growing. If we don't have if we cut off the immigration entirely, if we had in the last 10 years, we would be in the we wouldn't have recovered from the Great Recession. So that, this is, a, this is a, the problem of the ages. Just want to answer you a little bit on this. Uh, first of all, I'm in uh, opposition to this idea that you have uh, infinite growth. You know, and this is a capitalist idea, basically, I think. You know, uh, you can't exploit, you know, resources, people, and everything to the nth degree. Eventually, that has to stop. There has to be some kind of a dynamic equilibrium that exists between populations and so on. Um, so my question is, um, 
to what degree do you see, and we've talked about this before in, in the Science Cafe, to what degree do you see immigration relating to climate change and, and climate refugees essentially um, now and in the future? And I don't know if you know the answer, but it's just a, it's a, it's related to what you said, sir. I think we're only going to make more climate refugees. We already are. Honduras, we had them in the 90s. Um, Hurricane Mitch, we have Hurricane Mitch happens in the 90s. People are fleeing Honduras because of because of all of these kind of environmental issues. We ghettoize those populations, put them into places in um, Southern California, New York. Um, we've got this increase in criminal activity in the U.S. that is U.S. homegrown um, because we ghettoize populations in, in, in this country and we put them in situations where where crime becomes something that is profitable, and then we deport them back to these different places where we, I mean, MS-13, all these different gang issues that, that we, we, we visualize as like Latin American problems, these are homegrown U.S. kinds of problems, and many of them are connected to, to issues of global warming, to um, you can't farm in a place because, because there's no water, you can't live in a place because of the flooding, because, of, I mean, I think that the you cannot disentangle global climate change from from all of these issues and and it's almost like it gets kind of back to the immigration kind of reform question we're not it's not about um, addressing what's happening in East LA or what's happening in Houston it's about addressing like what is the global impact of like human activity and how do we reconcile so for me like comprehensive reform is starting with something like global warming and climate change, because that's going to, I mean, it'll go in about seven different directions, politically, socially, economically, but the root cause of it is us destroying our planet. I guess you've kind of really already answered what I was going to say. It's basically uh, that 25 million population in Mexico City, when the um, temperature gets so high in certain parts of the world that you can't, I mean, we've already seen uh, places hitting 40 degrees Celsius, in the summer in certain parts of the world. And I've seen um, estimates where they say that there's going to be massive migration to get away from that so that because you can't farm there, you, people will move into sort of northern Europe um, and, and northern uh, uh, Russia, uh, Asia, um, and obviously the United States in order to get away from the negative effects of climate change where it actually becomes too hot and too arid to actually exist. And places like Mexico um, are going to be the first affected because they're just further south than we are. I may be too naive, but uh, I think the issue of migration has existed ever since the humanity started. However, the conditions have been changing and uh, they are changing all the time. And in the last hundred years, they have accelerated, the change has accelerated because of the increase in the human knowledge, uh, needs. But now, if we look at this last 10 to 20 year period, uh, 
uh, most uh, advanced countries, adva industrialized countries, they are all looking for people. All over the world, uh, people with different skills. And we can't shut our eyes in the United States that we don't need people. So we have to work with the others to open the doors for people who we need. And now there, there's a classification of people that we are going to be needing. And we have to let them in as uh, we cannot grow, as this gentleman said, at the rate we, we, we want to have a lifestyle. We need more people. Thanks. So uh, Jason might know this a lot, too, because in Los Angeles and in California, my understanding is they, they looked at this issue, and they found that if they, could, if they got rid of all the illegal immigrants, the economy would shrink. And it, had, and it was the unskilled labor. There were jobs being done, money being spent, because there were people willing to work below minimum wage, willing to work off the books, and, and, uh, and, and therefore people would hire them to do jobs on the cheap that otherwise they just would not get done. So you had, you had more money flowing in the economy, more of that income multiplier working for you because you had that labor pull. And those were the unskilled uh, people. So uh, it's, and, and it's, it's counterproductive. If you really want the economy to grow, the, the gentleman who said you need people, they help fuel the economy, I think the, the data's really shown that uh, and borne that out. I was wondering if you could say more about the archaeological aspects of your work. You talked about um, collecting objects, and some of those are ending up in museum collections like the Smithsonian. But what are the other archaeological analyses that you do, and are you producing documents? Are there they're presumably photographic records? You showed us some of those, but talk, could you talk more about the archaeological um, kind of, um, apparatus and how that's manifesting. Sometimes I refer to myself as a um, classically trained archaeologist or a recovering archaeologist. Um, I wear diff different, depends on the day that you ask me. But I, I truly believe that archaeology is this important tool to understand the past. And in this context, like my dissertation is on the evolution of stone tool production amongst the ancient Olmec and the relationship between stone tools and political economy, which nobody ever sends you hate mail about your stone tool analysis. They're like, man, I know you're saying that elites don't control access to obsidian, but, you know, occasionally I have a... But, but nobody was ever, like, mad. Like, the hate mail I get is, like, the physical letters that show up in my office in West Hall where I'm like, should I get the tweezers out? Is there, like, you know... Um, but with this stuff, I mean... I do think that you can learn, so at the end of the day, I don't care if you love or hate migrants. I really, really don't. I just want you to have more information about people's experiences. And, and obviously I come with my own interpretation of like what's going on. Politics is inescapable. You cannot, you cannot do apolitical archaeology in any context. Um, every archaeology that you do is political. It just so happens that in this context, it's in this hyper-political situation where I'm trying to maybe dial it back. Um, but with this stuff, I mean, the collection of materials, the documentation has been a, um, it's had a couple of different roles. Part of it is salvage. So to say, here is an archaeological collection from this historical moment. 
I will put it out there. You can look at it if you want. I'm happy to share. We share it with folks. But people can kind of look and say, okay, this was a moment that happened, and there's there's a material record of it. It has not been erased. But then you can start to ask other kinds of interesting questions like, what does migration look like in the 21st century? What do people leave behind? Um, how are the things that we carry with us related to globalization, craft production, emotional sorts of things? And so we've we've explored the the water bottles, the backpacks, the clothing, in all kinds of different ways. Like So it, it could be anything from, I want to understand the evolution of a water bottle and how that, and, and, and they evolve really quickly. Um, uh, I didn't show many pictures of it, but like the water bottle for migrants started out white and then it became black because the black water bottle was um, some enterprising person in northern Mexico thought that they could sell black water bottles because they would reflect less light. And so you'd be less likely to be visible at night or during the day from Border Patrol because your receptacle is not reflecting as much light. Um, but then it heats the water bottle up to 140 degrees and has all these kinds of others. That it, it, but you can look at these materials and I think and say a lot about the human experience and about history just through the material culture. And it's a way to, I think for me, I think archaeology is incredibly relevant. I've always believed that. It doesn't matter if it's happening 10,000 years ago, 50,000 years ago, or, or, or this morning. I think that we can learn a lot about ourselves through, through this approach. And so this project has these kind of these different sorts of goals. And... Um, it's a uh, part of it. At the end of the day, is is I love the discipline so much, and I, I truly believe that it is um, one of the like most incredible approaches to our, our human condition. But we're oftentimes not very good at selling it to the public um, because some folks will say, "Well, that's just old stuff," right? Especially like right now in this current political climate, I have students who come to me and they say, "Well, I like archaeology, but how is this relevant to to what's happening right now?" And I want to say, well, you know what? They, they excavated um, Japanese internment camps. Tell me about that. I mean, what, like, why is that archaeology important? Um, and, and, you know, they will be excavating at Guantanamo Bay. That's going to be important as soon as people get access to that. But, I mean, we are this discipline that I think is situated both in the current political moment, the current situation, and in the past. And we can, we can talk about both of these things. I'm giving a lecture tomorrow morning in my Anth 101 class about archaeology, and one of the things I talk about is the Joe Paterno statue at Penn State. I went to Penn State. I was there um, up until I was there the weekend that the, the Penn State story broke, and I and I followed how they they tore down the monument of Paterno and how that was this important statement for the university to erase this thing. And I'm like, that's archaeology right there, right? These this manipulation of the past. Um, and how we engage with it in, in different eras, I think, is, is super um, important. And so, with, with this project too, it's um, it's just it's it's more that I can look at things that happened yesterday or last week or five years ago that I've collected, but I have to constantly engage with the current political situation now, um, which I think we all kind of do. And some, I mean, I think about like feminist archaeology in the 70s, right? Was was happening at a time when when feminism was really starting to, to pick up pick up um, speed. I think we're going to see a new round of that now, um, which is really exciting. And it's a, um, I think that everybody does contemporary archaeology because they're, they're doing archaeology of the past in these sort of moments now. And we're, just, we're getting better at thinking about that. Hi. Um, I was just wondering what your thoughts were about Inaritu's Carne y Arena exhibit. I went to see it at the MoMA in L.A., and there's been a lot of criticism and high acclaim and controversy surrounding it because it's virtual reality, it's a new art form, and it's very experiential, 
but maybe appropriative um, to some people, which I can understand. So could you share your thoughts and maybe sort of the difference between like a VR experience versus going to the Smithsonian and seeing these artifacts? So she's referring to this exhibition that's right now. It's at MoMA. It's in Milan um, and in Mexico City. It's called um, Flesh, and, Flesh and Sand, I think is how they're, they're um, translating it. It's made by um, Alejandro, Alejandro Inarito, who is a Mexican uh, film director. He's done Birdman and Amores Perros and Babel and a bunch of other films. I know all this because I consulted on the exhibition. <laughs> um, so I think I can speak to... Um, it's a virtual reality exhibition where you walk in I haven't seen the final version. I only saw it in the, um, the studio in L.A. where they had a prototype of it, where you walk in, it's a room like this, but it's round, it's pitch black, you take your shoes off, you walk around on dirt, and you wear a VR goggle. And they have a kind of simulated border experience where you, you walk past migrants and Border Patrol agents, and they're talking, and there's these stories kind of happening. Um, it's, a, it's kind of a powerful physical experience because I think partly the barefootness, walking on dirt, and it's kind of cold, and... A lot of stuff's happening around you. Um, when I went into it, when I was working on the on the project in the beginning, I was super skeptical of the VR. I was like, now it's like a cartoon. Um, and as he kind of pitched it, he was like, well, it's a it's an experience for rich donors to kind of engage with with migrants. And he's like, I have a captive audience of people who have money who who don't want to read maybe perhaps a, board, a book about border crossings, but they can go into the space and and can I can I have them get close to this thing. I appreciate that sentiment. I appreciate that, like, he recognizes that he's, he's a super famous wealthy dude who can create these scenarios where, where people will, will find some reason to go there who maybe they wouldn't do it in other places. Um, at the same time, I mean, he and I, when we talked about the thing, I was like, because there's a, a moment where the Border Patrol shows up and they're pointing guns around stuff and I'm like, they're not mean enough. They're not saying enough nasty things. And I said, because when I've encountered Border Patrol as a U.S. citizen, you ever had a gun put in your face? You ever been called, you know, X, Y, and Z? That's my experience. Um, and he says, well, you know, that might be a little too off-putting for the public, right? I mean, because I recognize that, like, he's, you've got to do this delicate balance of, I've got to come up here and tell you, I don't want to lose you. In this, I want you to get something at the end of it. And the, the, the picture I showed in the beginning in this lecture of Trump Last time I showed the slide, I called him a wildebeest. Because I looked at him, I was like, he kind of looks like a wildebeest. And someone was like, okay, look, I get it. You don't like his politics, but like, you now it's just kind of name-calling. Like, well, am I a rapist and whatever else that Mexican-Americans are called? I, mean, I don't know. This is like the era of name-calling. Um, but I get the point of like, you don't want to lose people in certain ways. You want to be able to sustain a conversation. And, I, and so I, I think that um, the accusations that it's like um, – it's like a vacation for like museum goers, or I think it's more complicated than that. And um, but I, but I definitely appreciate that criticism, and I think we always need to have that. Like, should I be doing this? Is this like just an art piece? Um, but I think if you were to ask him, there's good intentions, but it's popular. It's pop pop culture. It's a pop song about border crossings, and so it has to have a hook. Um. It's like the Beatles versus the Rolling Stones, right? I mean, like, that's the Beatles version. Um, the Rolling Stones version sometimes is like, it's, it's, it's kind of too rough. <laughs> I want to thank you for being here. It's been so nice. Um, you've been so generous with your time. 
we need to wrap up, and I, I have a couple of small business details, um, and I want to tell you about a few of the topics that are coming up. Um, first, there's little yellow half sheets on your table. Those are evaluations. They let us know how we did tonight. And um, if you have a topic that you want to see in the future, you can write it down there. Or if you just want to be on our mailing list, you can write, write your email down there, too. And that, that's great. Um, also, um, back uh, in the back of the room, there is, there is a donation box. Again, I have very high hopes for it. Uh, it these, uh, although we like to keep them free for those who can't pay, um, these, these programs do cost money to produce and, um, and the food and all that. Uh, so if you can donate, we certainly appreciate it. Thank you very, very much for coming. And um, I want to thank Jason once again for his time. Thank you.